Stop. Listen. Focus. Look at what you've been doing to manage your patients and their pain. Opioids, a 1 to 10 pain scale, patient satisfaction, an opioid epidemic, an overdose epidemic, a medical-driven calamity. But starting now, we are going to do things differently. We are leaning into pain control, the science, the evidence, the art of addressing pain more effectively at the bedside. We are having real conversations. We are going multimodal. We are owning regional analgesia. We are evolving the way we practice. This is the Advanced Analgesia Podcast. Our mission is better, safer, definitive analgesia in the emergency department. Join us. The revolution is just getting started. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Esty, your host for our podcast series, Advanced Analgesia in the Emergency Department. For today's episode, we're honored and pleased to have Dr. Rob Reardon with us to speak about regional anesthesia and ED practice. Dr. Reardon is a professor of emergency medicine at Hennepin County Medical Center in Minneapolis. He's also the associate chair of emergency medicine and the co-director of their acute pain service. Dr. Reardon is a nationally renowned airway and ultrasound expert, but he's also a leader in the field of regional anesthesia and emergency medicine practice. We're also joined by Dr. Don Stater, emergency medicine physician in Denver and director of the Advanced Analgesia course. He's also president of Stater Opioid Consultants. Rob and Don, thanks so much for joining us today. Rob, could you introduce yourself better than I have to our listeners? Uh, Well, I'm an emergency physician and I've worked nights my whole career. My interest in Regional anesthesia has been just, we noticed in our clinical practice that uh, obviously the trauma center, we have a lot of patients who need acute pain relief and uh, really they need, they need another option other than just loading them up with high dose narcotics. So that's really my interest in it came from that and most of it is self-learned. Interesting. Don, could you tell our listeners a bit about your interest in this topic? Yeah. So it came from a uh like Rob, a desire to decrease the number of opioids that we're using. And I'd say that it rapidly morphed from just that simple desire to be providing safer analgesia to the thought that we can actually provide better analgesia than we ever have before. And that's what led me really hard into regional analgesia because it's in so many cases definitive. If someone just can't feel the area that they're hurting, they don't have pain. And it's fun. It's easy to do for the most part. These are skills that emergency physicians are extremely, extremely well-versed in. And it's something that we should really lean hard into. So I'm super jazzed to be talking about regional analgesia with you today. Terrific. And I'm sure many of our listeners already use certain blocks in their day-to-day practice. But tell us about just the nuts and bolts. What do you think your typical ED physician should have facility with in terms of regional blocks? Well, I think a lot of emergency physicians learn in residency to do simple things like hand blocks and uh, maybe hematoma blocks of the wrist, things like that. But what they generally don't learn is what have become common and kind of in vogue in the regional anesthesia literature in the last five years is plain blocks, which are generally, like I said, not taught to emergency physicians, but incredibly useful. For example, you can block the whole chest wall on one side with a plain block, or you can you can block, you know, the hip and femur easily. Previously, you know, nerve blocks were thought to be kind of scary things, where you have to go near a nerve. And but now that there's ultrasound guidance, and we're really 
in most cases, not going very close to a nerve. Sometimes you are, but most of the time you don't have to. You just get into the same plane the nerve is and inject. And so that's really changed everything and it's made it, it's made it safer and really feasible for everybody. And it should be something that's taught diffusely in emergency medicine residencies, but it's currently not because it's, it's so new. Yeah, and I, just to piggyback on what you're saying, Rob, is it really has grown up with our greater appreciation of ultrasound. It's been pioneers like you and Vivek Tayal and, and Andrew Herring and, you know, all these other pain slash ultrasound experts who've said, hey, we can see these planes, we can see these nerves, and it's easy as hell to in, infuse some local anesthetic in this area and provide really amazing pain control. So I think evolution and a continued maturity and innovation in our practice, which, which is going to bring us into hopefully a big era of regional analgesia for the benefit of our patients. So do you need to be an ultrasound expert to use regional anesthesia in the ED? No, I, I think it's actually one of the easier things that we do with ultrasound. The, probably the average training that most emergency physicians get in residency makes them more than competent to do these things. You know, they're not all the same. Some are maybe a little bit more difficult. But if any, anyone who's learned to do, for example, an ultrasound-guided IV, in, in a lot of cases, ultrasound-guided IVs are more difficult than nerve blocks because you're trying to put something up the vein rather than just next to it. So if you can, anyone who has any experience with ultrasound-guided IVs could really do this. It's, it's really not hard. Tell me more about the plane blocks you're doing. How did you come to be doing plane blocks and which ones particularly are you finding useful? Well, I mean, I've learned most of them from not taking a specific course or anything, just like actually looking up a video on YouTube and, and doing them because some of them, like I said, are so new. For example, the ribs, uh, we used to do a serratus anterior block, which is incredibly easy blocked in, in the like lateral chest wall region. And that is only like literally a centimeter deep. If you can use an ultrasound machine and, and, and look at a needle going a centimeter deep, you can do that. And we did that for a few years for most rib fractures and it works pretty well. You don't get full analgesia at the chest wall, but it helps people quite a lot. And then now we do mostly the erector spinae black, which is a little deeper and I think much more effective. Uh, these things are so new that there's not a lot of research on them, but I'll tell you when you take somebody who has, uh, like just yesterday, for example, I, I put uh, erector spinae block in a patient who had 10 rib fractures and he was literally, you know, 10 out of 10 pain, writhing around, having trouble breathing could not sit up without a lot of help. And then, you know, a half hour later, he was almost completely pain-free. So it can block your entire chest wall on one side. And it's not a hard block to do. Uh, you just need to learn you know, tissue planes, basically. So, you know, these things are very doable. They're so new that actually most people who are experts in renal anesthesia uh, out there practicing, like anesthesiologists, don't do the erector spinae block just because it's so new. Uh, they didn't learn it when they trained. So kind of interesting. And, and before they get into plane blocks, I think one of the things that I'm hoping you could elucidate for us, Rob, is if you're, let's say, a community doc working you know, in a rural community and you're thinking, okay, I want to I start doing regional analgesia, what are the things you should go out and buy? What's the equipment? What are the tools you need to do this and do this well? Well, you need an ultrasound machine of some kind. It doesn't have to be the fanciest one. Actually, it could be one of the cheaper models because uh, you're not going very deep. Uh, and then really it, it helps some blocks you can do with just plain needles and some it would be helpful to have nerve block needles and nerve block needles are not expensive. You can get a case of them or whatever. Most hospitals already have them stocked. 
so you just need to know like what what block you should have a special needle for what block it really doesn't matter and really an echogenic needle is probably the, the most important thing especially for uh for the deeper blocks you just want to be able to see the needle with the ultrasound and a lot of the needles we currently use for like central lines and stuff are already echogenic so and if you have experience looking at needles while you're doing procedures it's it's pretty easy to to find the right stuff but we have specific nerve block needles of of different lengths and that's really all you need besides the ultrasound machine yeah and and I'll say that when we were putting our program together you know there's a few really basic things it's it's one you need to be able to see right a lot of regional analgesia is predicated on you can see the nerve you can see where the hell the needle is uh, and that's ultrasound you need to have something that's going to be an effective analgesic so you need something to inject and for us that included stocking our emergency department with larger vials of lidocaine bupivacaine and now ropivacaine and we can get into the differences between those three different LAs local analgesic agents and then you need something to inject with and that's where the block needles came in. And the difference between doing a deep block with a echogenic needle, a specific block needle versus versus maybe something else that you just have laying around is pretty significant. And especially as you begin your regional analgesia program, can't be discounted. Make it easy for yourself. Get the right tools in the ED to do this and do this well. Yeah, like I said, they're not expensive. So a lot of people struggle, you know, trying to see a routine needle and then they get a block needle and they're like, wow, I, I can see a lot better. So yeah, like, like you said, the right equipment really helps. We recently developed guidelines for surgeons and anesthesiologists for opioid sparing practices. And I was struck by the, the little bit of a turf battle between anesthesiologists and surgeons with the anesthesiologist very excited about ESP blocks, even for major surgeries like thoracotomies, and saying that there's no way a surgeon could do these blocks, tap blocks or ESP blocks. And many surgeons, or a small number of surgeons saying, I do this all the time, these are easy. And I'm hearing from you that ESP, at least, is a fairly straightforward block. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. You know, I think the difficulty of any of this stuff is, it depends on your ultrasound ability and experience. And like Don said, the right equipment. And that's that's pretty much what it boils down to. I mean, you need to know uh, about the toxicity of these things kind of max doses and that's of course really important but that's not it's not hard to make yourself a table of max dose of whatever drug you're using or general rules about how much you use so no i don't think it's it certainly isn't one specialty's purview anymore and i I would argue that we're pretty good at ultrasound in emergency medicine in general Mm -hmm. i think probably more than any other specialty than radiology you know interventional radiologists might use it more, but not, not many specialists do more ultrasound-guided procedures than emergency medicine. Sure. What other blocks, plain blocks in particular, are you, are you using more and more? The most common one other than the rib blocks is uh, fascial iliaca for hip fractures. So uh, we, have, we were actually asked by our orthopedics department to try to do a fascial iliac block on every single hip fracture that comes in, which we try. It's, there's a lot of them, of course, but that's how good the literature is in, as far as the orthopods go. They, they consider it the standard of care to do a hip block on every single, with a long anesthetic on every single hip fracture. So it was easy to get buy-in from them, and that's the other plain block that's, that, that we find the most useful. Yeah, and just to piggyback on that, we do the same thing here at Swedish where, where I work. And, and really, the evidence behind it is so compelling. 
people have shorter hospital stays. They have less cost of care. There's less delirium. Patients just have better pain relief too. It, it's an all-win in all facets. And and that's just such an easy procedure to do. I, I'll tell you, once I did my first fascia iliaca block, it's one of those things where I spent three minutes in the room. We identified and injected the structures. I walked out and said, why the heck have I not been doing that my entire career? And the patient had good pain relief. I'll say it's rare that you get 100% pain relief, but you do take that pain down significantly whenever you do one of these blocks. So uh, I certainly think starting in 2020 and beyond, this should be standard of care in emergency medicine. I'm curious, anytime someone mentions learning a skill on YouTube, curious about that, curious about you know, if we have patients who are listening and how that sounds. Tell us more about how you learned to do these blocks that you did not learn in residency. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's considering... I mean, I have a pretty extensive ultrasound experience and, you know, we teach courses in how to, how to do ultrasound guided everything, you know, from pericardiocentesis to paracentesis, thoracentesis. So I wouldn't say that's just watching a video from scratch and not having, you know, sure. any other experience. And, and, and also we've taught multiple courses on how to do nerve blocks on, on cadavers, for example, to our partners. So yeah, I don't think it's probably not the best way to learn it from watching a YouTube video. But it does, uh, and there's some stuff that's so new that there's no publications yet. There's, you can't look in a book, but like you want to fix something on your car's engine, it's going to be on YouTube. Yeah. Um, and, and, you, just, you have to make sure you should trust what you're, what you're watching. But. And I'm no specialist in ultrasound, but I am a specialist in YouTube. And I will say <laughs> it is an extremely powerful learning tool. Uh, I'd go ahead and actually counter what you said because it sounds like, you know, it's like, oh, it, it sounds farcical almost. Oh, you're just learning it by watching a video. Uh, I'd say that watching videos to learn is actually one of the most efficient, most effective ways you can learn new medical know-how. You see it visually. There's a visual component, there's an auditory component, and there's a practical component to a well-produced video. And, and we'll just drop the YouTube because part of the Advanced Analyst User course is, of course, the fact that we're using a lot of videos in order to teach. Now, as Rob said, that can't be your only modality. We'd love it if you'd watch a video and then go actually do an advanced analgesia course where you're putting needles in cadavers or in paid volunteers or someone else uh, who's going to uh, allow you to do that so that you're practicing first on uh, someone who's not in severe pain and you can hone your skills before you introduce them into clinical practice. To conclude, yay, YouTube. <laughs> so see what well, I like I said yeah so we amended the downside of watching a YouTube videos you might not know who these people are even and you need to be able to you know things like dosing I would not I would not believe what I saw on YouTube I would, I would make sure I you know the doses we use are very well researched and to make sure we don't go over a max and we've kind of set maxes for ourselves but you know the mechanics of doing something it's a video is a great way to learn. Albert Einstein once said, trust everything you see online. And I take that to heart. <laughs> so it's still see one, do one, teach one. It's just see one on YouTube, do one, teach one. Someone has to be the first one to do one. <laughs> and I guess, it, I mean, it's part, all joking aside, it's part of being a pioneer as you learn, you know, you have that spirit of learning new things as safely and effectively as you can. Speaking of safety, tell us more about local anesthetic systemic toxicity. And have, have you had any experience with things going a little bit wrong or a lot wrong? And how do you calculate your doses? Yeah, so the experience we've had with 
we often go near the max dose of ropivacaine. We, we prefer ropivacaine because it's the safest uh, local anesthetic because when you get toxicity, some of the other ones like bupivacaine, for instance, the first sign of toxicity might be a cardiac dysrhythmia, whereas ropivacaine tends to give you the first sign tends to be a neurologic sign, like tingling around the mouth or paresthesias. Or what we found the most commonly is altered mental status, hmm. uh, probably because most of our patients are older. And so we're, we're doing rib blocks and these hip blocks on 90-year-olds, 95-year-olds. So sometimes several hours after we do the block and we, start a, we put in a catheter and start a pump, the patient is very sleepy. And so it's usually a mystery why a 95-year-old gets sleepy in the hospital because, you know, they... There's 20 different reasons why they might be sleepy, but one of them is local anesthesia toxicity. So we've learned that, first of all, that that's a common sign and that we should turn off the pump immediately and just see what happens. If they're really down, we'll give them intralipids. And we've had patients who, for example, had respiratory cardiac arrest who after some, at some point, usually within an hour after getting their block, and uh, in some of these patients, they were so sick, they're in the ICU and they're teetering on the brink of an arrest anyway. And we're trying to do this to help the team like take severe pain off the table. And so the bottom line is it, it can be hard to tell whether the local anesthetic actually caused the problem or not. But the one thing for sure is that if you're going to do this, you need to have the availability of intralipid and to go ahead and use it. Uh, when you think that it's a possibility. So things are going to go wrong with every procedure. If you do enough of them, there's going to be a problem. So for the most part, we've had almost no problems. We've had a few cases where, where things didn't go so well. And if you stay within maximum dosing guidelines, the chances of a, of a big problem are very low. But you need to be able you need to know what to do, what, what symptoms to look for, what to do about it, and definitely have intralipid ready if you're going to do this. Yeah. And, and, and just to kind of get back to basics, because, you know, I don't want people to generalize what Rob's doing with what you might start with in your practice. Because right. Rob is, in many in many cases, he's the Captain Kirk of regional analgesia, right? He's, he's out there exploring unknown planets and, and really pushing the science and pushing the practice forward. We don't want you to jump right in, okay. both feet. Don, tell us what you do. What, what, what I do? Okay. Yes, tell us your block. Tell, but, yeah. But, what, what are the beginner blocks? Yeah, well, Where do well, we start? Well, I just want to, yeah. before we get to blocks, I just want to talk about agents. So, mm. uh, and, and also not people get too scared away by thinking, okay, well, this is something that's inevitably going to happen. A lot of this is about patient selection and knowing your agents. And, and let's just get back to agents. So, you know, there's three big agents we use, lidocaine, bupivacaine, ropivacaine. Emergency physicians will probably be more familiar with those first two because they're commonly used in practice. Lidocaine being shorter acting, bupivacaine being probably the longest acting agent that we have and use commonly. And then ropivacaine, which a lot of emergency physicians aren't as familiar with. And how I'd like you to equate it is it is the safer bupivacaine, meaning that lidocaine and ropivacaine, both when they give you sodium blockade toxicity, usually give you more of a neurologic component and not a cardiac component whereas bupivacaine is much more cardiotoxic. So if you give a big dose of bupivacaine accidentally, intravascularly, the first sign is, oh, the patient died, right? <laughs> uh, whereas if you do accidentally inject a large thing of ropivacaine, 
oftentimes the first sign is the patient is confused or the patient had a seizure. The great thing is with that second one, they don't need CPR. <laughs> you don't need to intubate them. It's not nearly as nasty a resuscitation. So, so really, as you implement this in your practice, do the safer two to really one, set yourself up to success and less complications. The other component is, just like Rob said, as you start your practice, you have to be well-versed in the potential side effects. And last being the big great white shark, right? That's the thing everyone is scared about. So before you start doing these large plane blocks, just make sure you have a protocol and you stock intralipid and that you have that margin of safety. And, and, and the last one, which is something so important that Rob mentioned, is that Oftentimes, local anesthetic systematic toxicity or last is something with an onset when you do these large plane blocks of an hour or two afterwards. It's after the patient leaves the ED sometimes and goes to the floor. So it's really important that you educate your hospitalist or your trauma docs that you're doing these blocks. And if someone does, after a large plane block, develop signs of toxicity, that those hospitalists are also aware of how to use intralipid. So, so there's a whole process to this and um, making it safe for patients and effective for patients. Uh, but I just wanted to mention some of those basics. Yeah, I will, I will say also that what we're doing is much different from what we're suggesting. That We're suggesting people start off with single injection blocks. And what we're doing is putting catheters in and connecting people to pumps. Uh, so often their blood volumes are going up after they, when they get the pump hooked up. The biggest, really, if you're just doing single injections, the biggest issue with that is like Don said, intravascular injection. And the great thing about watching it with ultrasound is, and, it, and with the plain box, is you can actually watch as you're injecting that you can see your local anesthetic going into the plane, so you can be 100% sure it's not inside of a vessel. And, and with single injection blocks, if you're gonna have a problem, it should be within a half hour, and that's what all the literature says. But So it shouldn't be like we experience where we're putting catheters in, and then it happens later, within 30 minutes, Theoretically, so if you don't, if you make sure it's not intravascular, you really shouldn't have much of a problem. It's just a good idea. After we had some problems and we got all geared up and with our intralipid and learned, I, I didn't previously know how to give intralipid or anything about it or anything really about last. And it kind of strikes me how long I used lidocaine and bupivacaine and just you know blindly put it into around lacerations, for instance, without knowing anything about local anesthetic toxicity or how to recover from it if you had it. So I think learning about that is not a bad thing, whether you're going to do this or not, because all emergency physicians use the, those agents all the time. Two quick questions for you. Speaking of agents, do you have any experience or thoughts about liposomal bupivacaine in these single shot blocks? Oh, the liposomal yeah. uh, bupivacaine? So the experience that I have with it is all with rib blocks. Mm -hmm. So I've given it two separate chances, and I must say I'm not a big believer in it. A couple of years ago, I did multiple intercostal blocks with it uh, on multiple occasions, thinking that it would last, you know, people said, well, it lasts maybe two or three days. Uh, and then I followed up with the patients, and they said, no, it's really only lasted 12 hours, and the pain came back. So it might work better in different blocks, like plain blocks, for instance, but the handful of times I've used it, it didn't seem to have that magical, long-acting effect uh, that I expected. Mm -hmm. And I think the evidence, too, there's been a few studies where liposomal bupivacaine has frankly just been underwhelming. Um, but let's remember, you have to inject it right, and you have to use a much larger bore needle than usual, or the liposomes just 
bust and don't work. Who, who's paying you, Elizabeth? I am you a not. Rep for I am not an expert rep at all. But there are surgeons and anesthesiologists who swear by it and will remind users that if you use it the same way you do lidocaine or bupivacaine, no, it doesn't work because the liposomes are destroyed by the tiny needle. Hmm. And you have to you have to read the directions for Expirel. Um, it's interesting. You know, there, there are certainly surgeons and do major procedures with tap blocks with Expirel and report great results. Who, I, my jury's out. I don't, I don't know. But that is one thing I picked up along the way. Yeah, I, I, I would like to use it more and, and see. You know, it's certainly more convenient than putting it in a catheter. Yeah, it's, catheters is, and it's more expensive, too, I think, it's is, not the, very convenient. is the big, big issue. Hey, speaking of catheters and pumps, do you send patients home with these pumps ever? We do. Yeah. Uh, we mostly do them in patients who have enough pain to get admitted. So if they, you know, if they have one rib fracture, we're not going to put it, that kind of thing in. But if they have 10 rib fractures and they get admitted, we might put one in. And then when they feel better, send them home. Mm-hmm. So we do send them home. That's probably not what we want to encourage people to start doing right from the start. Sure. I'd love to hear from both of you what some of your bread and butter day-to-day favorite blocks are. Rob, could you get us started? What's your, what's your number one favorite block that we haven't discussed thus far? Well, I'll go back to one we already discussed. Director Spine block is my favorite because it not only can be used for multiple rib fractures, it also, there's some there's studies, and I have experience with it, with spinal fractures. It's going to block the transverse process, of course, because that's where you're injecting the medicines. So if you have a transverse process fracture, it's, it's a no-brainer. But it also works for other spinal fractures, and it's used in spinal surgery. And you can place it in the upper back, mid back, or lower back. Also, some people that I've placed it in had miraculous relief of their chronic neck pain all of a sudden after we injected. So it Mm. definitely travels up into the head. Mm -hmm. Actually, there was a, we just placed one in a patient for rib fractures the other day who subsequently had an MRI of his C-spine. And they they said that there must be some myofascial uh, derangement because they saw the fluid up in his neck. (laughs) Um, So there's people who reported that it works for chronic shoulder pain. So, I mean, or pelvic, you know, if you do it down low enough, sacral fractures. So anyway, I think it's it's a new block that there's going to be a lot that it's used for in the future. So, and it's, and it's a single, a single skill that you can use for all this stuff. It's kind of crazy. So one block with a lot of range. Don, what's your favorite block these days? I'm going to go to back to basics and what you do in emergency medicine residency, hematoma blocks. You know, this is so underutilized. It's, it's just insane to me. I do hematoma blocks on any fracture I can feel and see. So I do hematoma blocks on clavicle fractures. I do them on wrist fractures. I do them on humeral fractures. I do them on femur fractures with an ultrasound that I can see the fracture point in. And I love them for reduction of bimal and trimalleolar fractures. Last three cases I had, nasty, nasty trimalleolars. You know, the, the type of picture that you'd post uh, on EM docs or something else and say, look at this nasty ankle. I've done reductions of the last three of those using just really great hematoma blocks. And patients have relief. You can reduce them. You can splint them. They're happy. And it's also just great not to have to commit the whole emergency department to a sedation. So, so hematoma blocks are something that we should really lean harder into in our clinical practice. Rob, what are you using these days that you find very effective? I agree that the hematoma blocks are way underutilized. Don mentioned the nasty ankle fractures. Another option, a hematoma block is a great option, but that in in combination with one of my other favorite boxes, so a distal popliteal block. So anyone who has done DVT studies behind the knee 
has probably seen the popliteal nerve. They just don't recognize it. So if you think of the artery and the vein as the bottom of the snowman, uh, when you look at the popliteal region, the head of the snowman would be the popliteal nerve. And basically that's all there is to it. You uh, look at that nerve and inject next to it and you get an almost complete block of below the knee. So it's way underutilized, uh, easy to do. And so I like, whenever I see someone giving propofol for an ankle reduction, I always think like when they wake up, they're still gonna be in horrible agony. You do a bupivacaine block of the popliteal uh, nerve, you're gonna get uh, you know 12 hours of relief. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's like playing checkers versus playing chess when it comes to the decision making, right? Is do a regional analgesia block, and you're thinking hours and hours ahead, and hours and hours of relief for the patient, rather than like you said, sucking up all the resources from the department, getting two nurses in, doing a timeout, having a respiratory therapist there, you know, doing all the stuff for a three second procedure when it comes to reduction. So so I love the popliteal block, and it sounds the coolest, you know, popliteal. <laughs> it's got a good, uh, good, good sound to it. So, so I'll say for my next block, fascia iliaca. Uh, this is a great starter block. The evidence is so compelling, and it's easy to do. It's a great way to get your feet wet in regional analgesia, and it has great benefit for patients. So, so again, fascia iliaca block is is probably the next one on my list. Rob, what else comes to mind for you? For I would, I'll go back to rib fractures just because I, I've had a couple uh, sets of rib fractures on each side and uh, they hurt a lot and narcotics don't help a lot. And so the serratus anterior block, I think, is way underutilized. So if you're just a beginner and you don't want to dive into a, a rector spinae because it's a little bit deeper and, and you, you generally have to get at the patient's, well, you have to get at the patient's back to do that. So a lot of times when someone has a bunch of rib fractures and, and maybe they, they're still on spinal precautions, things like that, you can't get at their back. So a serratus block can be done laying flat on your back, super easy. You just put the ultrasound probe kind of in the armpit region and literally your needle goes about a centimeter deep and you start injecting. One of the easiest blocks you could ever do, almost no mistake that you could make doing that block. And your patient gets, you know, it, it's not great for posterior rib fractures necessarily, but really all other rib fractures, it works great for. Mm-hmm. Don, what else? What are you using? I'm going to talk headaches because this is a thing where after your migraine cocktail fails, or even before you use a migraine cocktail, there's two different procedures I love. Occipital nerve blocks and cervical trigger point injections. And both of them are just so effective. You know, if you examine a patient, uh, get, get used to this practice, by the way. When you have a patient with headache, push on their neck and push on their occipital nerve. And if they say, ouch, that makes my headache worse, they have at least a cervicogenic component of their headache. And the right treatment for that isn't committing a nurse to a line and spending the, you know, the next one and a half hours getting fluids, Reglan, Benadryl, Decadron, Tordal, the rest of your you know, migraine cocktail and hoping the patient gets sleepy enough and then trying to find them right home. It's actually just going back in there with a needle and doing an injection and checking on them 20 minutes later. I, I oftentimes discharge migraineurs uh, or headache patients after these blocks without any other adjunct therapy or with simple Tylenol Motrin orally. And it's amazing the types of refractory headaches that you can break. Or, or lastly, it's amazing too, is if you have a person who's got a tough migraine or chronic migraines and you offer them a trigger point injection, it's a great place to stop. If they say, no, I don't want you to stick a needle in my neck, say, well, you know, one, I think that'd be the next best thing. But then other than that, why don't we just get you home so you can sleep this off? 
So to me, if they, if they don't want a trigger point injection or a needle, it's a great way to pivot to getting them discharged from the emergency department. Trick of the trade. Small injections. And, uh-huh. you know, um, just for, for ER docs out there, you know, you know who exactly who I'm talking about. The person who's been through seven or eight rounds of medications. They're so groggy, you have to wake them up to say, how bad's your pain? And they wake up from a deep sleep and they go, oh, I think it's, it's around a 10 still. You know, it's just, it's just still killing me. Uh, I'm still just an intolerable pain. Oh, what was I dreaming about? And you're like, you know, objectively, using my objective clinical opinion, your pain appears to be greatly alleviated and you should probably just go home and sleep. I don't want that to suck up a bed. So if they say, no, don't inject my neck, I say, I've offered you the next step. You have kindly refused it, which is your right. And now let's try to get you home so you can sleep in your own bed, which is also going to relieve your migraine. So again, it's not incompassionate, but it is a nice stopping point. And you say this all with the needle in hand. I see this with a large spinal needle. <laughs> you know, the one, the one that just, if I had a sword, I'd burn that. But, uh, but no, and, and they're great blocks. I mean, they're just so effective. Rob, anything else comes to mind for you that we haven't talked about? Well, I think, you know, everybody in residency learns uh, how to block a hand. And, you know, we know, all know that we can do it, whether you call it blind or by, by landmarks. But really, if I was going to have a hand block, I would rather have somebody, first of all, it's, it's a great starting point for beginners because the nerves of the forearm are so easy to see. So the median nerve, for instance, is like super easy to visualize, super easy to put a, a needle next to and you put five cc's of bupivacaine next to the median nerve, you're going to get the whole palm anesthetized. And so the, you know, the ulnar and the median nerves are easy to see. The radial uh, nerve can be blocked with just a sub-Q injection around the wrist. And then your whole hand is anesthetized. So it's a beautiful way to do a hand block and also learn how to do a nerve block at the same time. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I will say I'll have a case that just made me such a believer in hand blocks. I had a, a three-year-old who dipped their hand in boiling water and was just screaming their brains off. And our nurses couldn't get a line. And we did some you know, intranasal fentanyl. But then I basically brutained and held, we held this kid down and I did a blind hand block on him. And uh, next time I walked in the room, he was, he was asking mom if he could watch the next show on Netflix. You know, while we transferred him to the burn center. So, so you know, these are these are tremendous blocks, and uh, especially for good analgesia and the the little chitlins. So, for my last one, because I know we're doing four a piece here, I'm gonna go back to basics again. Lumbar trigger point injections are gonna change your practice when it comes to low back pain. And people sometimes do this wrong, so I'm gonna tell you how to do it right. You want to use huge volumes. I'm talking. You want to put 20 to 30 mLs of 0.25 bupivacaine into people's backs. You want to inject everywhere that they hurt. And you want a dry needle or wet needle, as I jokingly call it, afterwards. And, and I've had so many patients who, you know, when I work with partners or work with my physician assistants, they'll say, this person needs to be admitted for back pain. And I'll say, well, have you done a trigger point injection? And they'll say, no, the pain is just too diffuse. Or no, I don't think they're a good candidate for whatever reason. Or no, they have sciatica. And I'll say, okay, well, let me go see them. And I'll go in and do these injections, and they'll be pain-free and ready to go afterwards. I think with every person with lumbar back pain, where you can push on their back and they say, oh, it hurts when I push there, you should be putting a needle in them. It's one of kind of my core philosophies of analgesia in the emergency department. It hurt when you push, it gets the needle. 
right? And it's just so simple. It makes inherent sense to the patient, makes inherent sense to, to everyone involved. And lastly, there's a great study now that's come out that shows that when you do trigger point injection, it gets you faster, longer-lasting analgesia than other traditional care, be it NSAIDs and Tylenol or opioids, etc. It's the best care you can give to patients with low back pain. Thanks, both of you. I would like to just hear your thoughts, too, about what the future holds and where you see the most promising avenues for more innovative use of regional anesthesia, maybe in severe trauma. I'm just speculating. Tell me where you hope we'll be in 10 years. Well, I think that regional anesthesia has been most studied, definitely been most studied in operative patients uh, for operative and post-op care, because that's where anesthesiologists work, right? So I think it's been understudied and way underutilized in trauma care. So I think for emergency medicine, there's amazing opportunity to learn new blocks, develop new blocks, and really use a a lot more regional anesthesia in trauma patients of all kinds, whether they're getting admitted, whether they're major trauma, minor trauma, you know, going to the ICU or going home. I hope in 10 years, I'm pretty confident that it'll be used a lot more widely. The amazing thing is regional anesthesia has been used for decades, but there's still things being discovered, like these crazy plane blocks that nobody even know can figure out why they work in a lot of, you know, they're still arguing about the mechanisms of why they work, but they work. So I'm thinking there's going to be a lot more of that in the future, a lot more cool places to put uh, needles and, uh, and inject local anesthetic. And also it would be nice if there was a really long-acting local anesthetic out there. There's not one right now, but heck, mm-hmm. if there's an anesthetic that could last a week, that would be better than 12 hours. For sure. And I I imagine, Don, that you're very interested in how to get there in 10 years, kind of what the education of ED physicians is going to look like in this field. Yeah, and that's really why we started this company of Advanced Analgesia. You know, we've gone from, I think, a fear-based motivation of changing our practice, which is opioids are scary, opioids are harmful, we have to get them out. And we developed, you know, alto programs, alternatives to opioid programs, right, because of that. And really, as I've done this work over the last three, four years now, I've realized it's not just about alternatives to opioids and fear-based. It's just about doing things better. Uh, and that's what uh, advanced analgesia is about. This is better care, plain and simple. This is more fun care for you to go and actually put your hands on a patient and find a nerve and block it and see that patient's face go from one of agony to one of relief and gratitude. This really does feed the heart and soul of the emergency physician. And just to Rob's point, how I see this in 10 years is this is going to be standard of care. This should be standard of care in 10 years. We should give patients the best, most definitive pain control that they can get. And that means regional analgesia in every emergency department. And we have a long way to go to get there, right? We have a whole population of emergency physicians and nurses to to train. We have turf wars that we're going to have to battle with some of our specialists. But at the end of the day, when we keep the patient at the heart and center of what we're doing, we're going to win. And in regional analgesia, that's certainly the case. Getting patients out of pain, comfortable, and ready to enter the next stage of healing is going to be huge. And when it comes to traumatic injuries regional analgesia is going to be king. Could you both tell us a bit about what you can do to make your blocks the most effective? So there's two things you can do. You can either get very close to the nerve, and some people will get close to the nerve and inject small volumes. What we like to do is, especially if we're doing a plain block, is stay away from the nerves. A lot of times we can't even see the nerves we're injecting near in a plain block, and we give fairly large volumes of fluid. And 
of course, we don't go over the maximum recommended dose for whatever local anesthetic, but we dilute it down with normal saline. And sometimes when we're doing these big blocks in the tissue planes of the back, like director spinae, we will put 120 mils in there. I mean, that's not normal for most nerve blocks. Uh, most of the time, if you're near a nerve, you can get away with 20, 30, 40. But just be aware that plane blocks especially, and if you're not near the nerve, volume actually helps. So if you're doing a single infusion, you go close to the max for whatever agent you're using? So the max recommended dose is like, for example, repivacaine is three milligrams per kilogram. If someone is a young, healthy person who crashed their car and has a femur fracture, I feel like we can, if, and if we do a femoral nerve block or a fascial iliac block, that person we can go near the maximum dose for them as long as they're otherwise young and you know, healthy. If we have an older, say a 95-year-old who hasn't eaten well for a week and has metastatic cancer, that's someone who you don't want to, as far as dosing, don't even half the dose, the max dose. So you just realize that the max dose and the volume is two different things. So mm -hmm. we figure out the, the max dose, five milligram per kilogram, and then we, whatever, depending on the block, we'll dilute it down with saline to whatever volume we want. But Don, do you have thoughts about how to make blocks as powerful as they can be? Yeah, there's two things, and 100% and agree with Rob. It's all about volume. You want to turn the volume up when it comes to uh, doing these blocks. And that means be generous. When I inject people, I try to inject them with a lot of local anesthetic, keeping within the safety margins. But for example, for my hematoma blocks, let's say someone broke a wrist or an ankle, I try to put 20 mLs of a local anesthetic into those areas, right? I want to make sure that, that they're getting as much local anesthetic as possible into the areas that they have their pain. The other thing that you can do, which has been shown in some literature, is just add some dexamethasone, you know? Start stalking your ED with four milligrams of dex. And while you're pulling up your ropivacaine, bupivacaine, lidocaine, just pop a needle afterwards in dexamethasone and pull four milligrams and inject it with your local anesthetic. And that's been shown to prolong the effect of your local anesthetic in those areas. And I think those are really two of the, the key components to making sure that you have a lot of good success. Thank you. To get a little crass and mercenary here, are these blocks, can you bill for these? Yes. Just be aware that some of the blocks are so new that you might have to teach your billers uh, how to bill for them. For example, if you're going to do some of these chest wall blocks, there, there may not be a code number for a serratus anterior block, for instance, but there are codes for multiple intercostal nerve blocks, which is essentially what you're doing. So if you're doing a plain block in the chest, what I do is I, when I write my note, I say, if the patient has seven rib fractures, I say multi-level intercostal nerve blocks, and then I put in parentheses seven levels. And really, no matter what sort of plane block I'm doing, I, I make sure the billers know that it's an intercostal block and it's multiple levels, because that's easy to, for them to code. So I would just work with your coders to figure out how this is done. But yeah, definitely billable. Don, how has this looked at Swedish? You know, very well. And I would say that you're not being crass at all. Because ultimately, what we want in medicine is a system that makes sense. And we should be paid to do things that are evidence-based, benefit patients, and make sense. And regional analgesia is one of the only areas where all these things align, right? By doing these injections and the ultrasound that it takes to identify this, those are both billable procedures. Those will improve the revenue of your practice. They'll improve the health of your patients. They'll improve their pain control, and they'll improve their outcomes. Win, 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 
win. All I do is win, 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 no matter what, right? <laughs> when it comes to regional analgesia. Rob, are there ED docs out there who have objections to doing these other than just fear or stuck in their ways? No, are there any? So. I think it's, okay. just, yeah. it's one of those things that takes a little extra time, a little bit extra effort to learn. So there's going to be people who don't do it because of those things, but really it's hard to object to this. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. Thank you both so much for sharing your expertise and your insights. I can't tell you, Rob, how much we appreciate having you here today. 